Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Erin Sheffield. She's an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Quincy, Illinois. Erin, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic today. Yes, I am too. So we kind of discussing at a different time, we're talking about how it would be good to kind of talk about ways we can kind of you know, advocate for women and discuss the experience of women as well in our specialty. Can you uh, maybe just start us off by telling us a little bit about your experience being a woman and going through residency, et cetera, and working in, in our field? Definitely. Well, we could talk for hours about this, so maybe we can do podcast three and four. Five. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'll try to kind of succinctly talk. I've been really passionate about this topic ever since I was in residency. And I do want to say things are getting better. 100% they are getting better. And I also want to make it clear, I can only speak on my experience or experiences I've heard from friends or kind of trends or opinions that I've noticed. So I don't want to sound like I'm speaking for all women in surgery or in our specialty or anything like that. But, you know, these are kind of the things, my own personal experiences or, or observations. But when we were required to do a research project in residency, and I decided to do mine on this topic because I was surprised in 2015, Jameis, there's an article published, and it said that something like 2.89% of Amos members were women. And that was in 2015. And I just thought that was shocking. Like I knew there weren't very many of us. I was the fourth woman in my program. And, you know, I went back and looked once like, what, our program's like decades, 60 years old or something, you know, <laughs> and I'm the fourth ever. And I was in my program. I did an internship year there as well. So I was there for five years and I was the only woman there that whole five year period and for, you know, at least a few years after. So I just was really curious. My husband, I was in medical school at the time, you know, and I was thinking, okay, how come when dentistry is catching up, you know, we're being told that 50% or sometimes more than 50% of dentists or dental students coming out are women. And then same for medical school. How come like medicine, you're seeing women and general surgery and other specialties kind of surging and catching up? Why are we still in like the 2% range? So I actually did my research project on that in residency. And it was kind of a little hard to flesh out. But I think some of it is partially just I think it's dentistry, the people that are choosing to go into dentistry are often going into it for the lifestyle. A lot of women are choosing it because it is flexible for a family. And, you know, adding that extra, you know, 
multiple years in a hospital residency makes it difficult. You know, I remember having that concern, like, how can I have a family? When can I have a family? You know, can I make this work? Um, So that's definitely a challenge. And then some of it's just not having the visibility of women mentors and being able to see yourself in that position. And then I think like some fear and intimidation and things like that. So those are some of the things that that I've kind of noticed. And I think that's maybe why our specialty continues to lag behind other medical specialties or even other dental specialties. Again, just because it's a little maybe unique to dentistry (laughs) to take the lifestyle factors in general dentistry or some of the other specialties and then going to oral surgery, that's such a huge jump and a change. So, you know, I don't think that necessarily because we have less women that that means that we're hundred percent doing anything wrong, but there are some things we can do better. That's a good rundown of kind of some of the reasons I was thinking of the same. Was your residency easy was it hard was it did it make it harder because you were a woman or how was your experience yeah I was really lucky I feel like my residency overall was very friendly and supportive I think the nature of residency is just toxic in general (laughs) so regardless of who you are your gender your ethnicity whatever which program you're at whether it's friendly or not I think there is some toxicity to it I think it's just kind of unfortunately, the model, and hopefully we're getting away from that a little bit. But I was lucky to be an institution that I never felt like because I was a woman, I was less than. So I didn't feel like I experienced any overt or egregious sexual harassment or discriminatory incidents. But that's not true for everyone. I have friends who have had egregious acts of discrimination or harassment or even assault. <laughs> you know, so these things do happen. And I think it's naive for us to think that they don't anymore. And so I think that's really important that we have this conversation because these things definitely happen. Luckily, I didn't face anything on that level during residency, but it's usually those microaggressions or those kind of day-to-day events that happen that make it difficult. And most of them are silly. You know, it's one of those things where on a case-by-case basis, it's just kind of silly. It's not that big of a deal. If you were to tell our male colleagues, they'd probably roll their eyes and say you're being sensitive or something like that, you know. But when it's a daily or multiple times per day episode that continues to happen, it really starts to wear on you and, and it does affect you. And I think it's also tricky because a lot of times it is such a minor thing. It's easy to question yourself and to feel like it's not that big of a deal. And then not to be able to own it and understand like, why does this hurt me? You know, like this bothers me. It makes me upset. It's making me jaded, but it's not a big deal. What's wrong with me? Am I crazy? So I think it has this double-edged sword that not only does it make it more difficult, but it also makes you question yourself a little bit. So I thought I could talk about maybe some examples of what those things are, because I think without being in those shoes, it's hard to even imagine, you know, it's kind of like me, as I learn more about being, you know, black in America, per se, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a black man walking through a white neighborhood. And some of the things that, you know, they go through, I just, that's just not something that's my experience. And I think, it's that same way in our specialty with women. So I just wrote down a few kind of, again, they seem silly perhaps, but some little minor kind of microaggressions or just things we deal with. So probably the biggest thing 
and it continues now outside of residency is just establishing yourself as a doctor. So I remember being quite a ways into residency and being really surprised listening to the guys in my residency talk about when they introduce themselves to patients. They're just like, hey, dude, my name's Bob. And they'll be like, hey, doctor, nice to meet you. Let's get going. And I was like, floored. Like, you just introduced yourself as Bob? How could that even be? You know, like, I think it's friendly for me to just use my first name and stuff because I would literally go in with every single patient. You know, it's like I'm wearing my white coat and it has this big sign on it that says doctor. And I'd go in and I'd be like, hello, my name is Dr. Sheffield. I'll be your surgeon today. I'd go through all of the consent form, explain the procedure. I'd get all gowned up and ready to go. And then they'd be like, oh, my gosh what are you doing? When is a doctor coming in? <laughs> you know, so, you know, so people, that's my experience. I'm like, I have this giant thing on my chest that says doctor. And they actually figured out that I was a doctor. Then it's, you know, are you sure you're strong enough to be doing this? You know, so it was just amazing to me. I was just floored when I found out they're going and introducing themselves at Bob, you know, <laughs> it's just so opposite, you know, and that's hard. I'm going into a room and having uh, the patient or even other doctors uh, dismiss you and think that you're a nurse or some other kind of staff housekeeping or something, you know, just starting to talk over you or not listen. I think a lot of women have experienced being like the chief resident and having the patient look the male intern (laughs) for the leadership on, you know, or the answers to the questions, things like that. So that's probably the most common thing in my experience that happens. I think also there's kind of this double-edged sword, hygiene and grooming is kind of interesting, you know, the guys roll out of bed and put on scrubs. (laughs) And we, you know, spend time to do our hair and makeup, then we're too girly and feminine and we're not taken seriously or things like that. But if we don't take the time to do that, then we're not professional and we're not presenting ourselves in, you know, appropriate way. That's kind of an interesting one. And let's see what else. Even at last Amos meeting, I had a friend who was on a panel discussion and, you know, they'd introduced all these other male doctors and now here's Dr. So-and-so, Dr. Mike and Dr. John. And then when she got up, he called her sweetie. And that's even at our professional meeting, you know. So things like that. I know of another person that when they were talking to the state oral surgery, they sent out an email saying, gentlemen, you know, like forgetting that we're there and that we're not gentlemen. (laughs) So there's just things like that that happen pretty commonly. But, you know, again, they're silly little things, but when it continues to happen, it does make you feel like an outsider or like you have to work that much harder to prove yourself. That's good to hear because it's some stuff that maybe as a man, I don't think of right off. But as soon as you start saying that, it makes sense, you know, that like, especially I think the patients have a preconceived notion, you know, that generally a surgeon's a man, not a woman. And you know, the nurses are women and, and all, all sorts of stuff culturally that can go into these biases. You know, how have you been able to kind of push through that and just say, you know, kind of let it roll off your shoulders? Is there any 
secret to that or is it just kind of come with time or? That's an interesting question. I think you have to have a balanced act to it because in some ways it's easier to not say anything or to correct people or to stick up for yourself or to set the boundary. And I think especially as women, um, maybe that's what we're more conditioned to do. You know, I think women and girls are conditioned to always show tact and to always care about people's feelings and to never say or do anything that would seem like being pushed back, you know, and when you do, you come off looking overly assertive or bitchy or, you know, all those terms that we get called. And so I think initially, especially in my immaturity and probably especially as a resident, I just kind of let most of it go. As I've gotten older and I've gained more confidence and, you know, don't care quite so much, I have tried to make more of a conscious effort to actually correct people and just to set a boundary. And you don't have to do that in a mean or, you know, unprofessional way or anything. But, you know, actually, I'm the doctor. I'm Dr. Sheffield, you know, <laughs> you know, just asserting that. But I think one thing that would be really wonderful from our male colleagues is if they would be the ones to assert that sometimes, you know, it'd be really great to have you be the one. Actually, you know, this is Dr. Sheffield. She's our chief resident and you'll be in great hands with her, you know, something like that, because the people that are questioning us may take it or appreciate it or understand it better from you than for us. And maybe that, maybe that's not a good answer to your question because it's making it again, it's not me taking ownership, but you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. And I think realizing most people aren't trying to be rude. They're not trying to be discriminatory. They're not trying to harass you or anything like that. They just need education. And so, you know, we need to correct people in a kind way or be willing to say something or to step up where we can. And I think that will make little differences over time, if that makes sense. For sure, need to be more supportive with our language as men. And also just be avoid, you know, negative talk. You brought up some of these words that I've often heard thrown around because I feel like, you know, there's this conversation that goes by. And sometimes I've even felt it where I feel like, why are many of the women in surgery I've met, you know, maybe seem so flagrant or bitchy, I guess you could say. And I mean, I'm sure being in that situation where you're constantly undervalued or under, you know, treated and respected, that would for sure be kind of someplace you'd want to go. But as men, I think recognizing that, hey, this is kind of a culturally more difficult for women to be respected at the same level that we are and to not just write it off as, oh, they're being an unreasonable person because. Sometimes I think we have that tendency to say, oh, why are they being, you know, just so irritable about all of this, you know, just whatever. Who cares if someone says that? But I think it's, you know, if we do start standing up for women and talking positively, you know, maybe they won't have to be so reactionary, you know, when that happens. But I don't know if that. No, I love that. I think. I had the same thought as I was kind of preparing for this. I was thinking about there's definitely the stereotype of like the intimidating woman surgeon. And I remember in residency as I came across other women surgeons across multiple specialties. Again, there weren't any really in my specialty to come across, but they were almost always universally like very assertive, very intimidating. And I remember using those words 
and now I repent of that a little bit, I think a lot of it is we need to examine like, what is our cultural expectation of appropriate behavior for women? You know, usually to be submissive, it's usually to be bending and to be tactful. And as a woman surgeon, you need to take charge, you need to have confidence, you need to advocate for your patients, you need to be decisive and definitive. All of these things that are in a masculine person, you know, in a man, these are more masculinely acceptable traits. These are, you know, what make him a great surgeon. And yeah, he's scary. You know, how many scary men surgeons are there that throw things, you know, like there are very scary ones too. But I feel like even though people are afraid of them, there's like an air of mystery and awe and, you know, respect for women. It's like, she's just kind of a witch, you know? And, and I was surprised because there was another resident that I worked with that I felt like I was pretty friendly with. I was kind of pushing back on a treatment plan they were asking for. I didn't think it was appropriate treatment. And so I was pretty assertive with her. And I later found out that she was afraid of me. <laughs> And that was so shocking to me. I'm like, I am like the nicest person. Like I listen to my high voice. Like there's nothing scary about me, you know, but even I had earned that scary, intimidating woman surgeon vibe, even from a person that I thought we we're, you know, friendly acquaintances. And so I've thought about that more. I think some of it, again, is culturally. And then some of it, I think, the stereotype probably is a little bit true because you think about the women pioneers in surgery to be able to get there, you had to be assertive. I mean, I just can't even imagine what that would have been like, like the overt harassment, the overt feelings of them not belonging there. You know, they had to be tough as nails and they probably had to be one of, you know, basically be like one of the guys. And I have found perhaps sometimes women surgeons or women in general are some of the least supportive of other women. And I think that that's really sad. But as I've thought about it, I think some of it is they had to be the best of the best. I've always heard that to be a woman surgeon, I had to be the best. That was the only way you could, you know, assert your ability to even be there. And so I hear commonly things like, I'm not a woman surgeon, I'm a surgeon, you know, or I don't need other women surgeon, you know, and so they've done a really good job of breaking in the good old boys club. But the only thing I can think is, I think it's probably threatening to them to see more women coming in. And we can't all be the best surgeon in the entire world. You know, like, I was not the best resident ever to go to the University of Iowa. I wasn't, you know, and I am not the best surgeon in the entire world, but I'm pretty dang good and I have a lot to offer, but I wasn't the best and I made mistakes and I didn't know everything. And I think the only thing I can think is that it was probably threatening to them because when they see weakness or mistakes coming from other women, that threatens them you know, and all that they worked for because they had to be perfect to be accepted. And I'm so grateful that they pioneered to provide the ability for me and others to actually, you know, be able to be in the specialty we are because, wow, I just can't even imagine going through what they went through. But I can understand a little bit why maybe they have those stereotypes of being hard and assertive and, and you know, because they really had to be just to make it. But thankfully, things are changing. But I think it just highlights how important it is for women to support women as well. And that's my opinion. I could be wrong, but that's my opinion. Yeah, I would guess there's some of that, you know, like I had to be so tough to get through this. 
I mean, men do that too. And you need to as well. You know, we're like the chief president, have a kind of dog and intern and beat him up or whatever. Maybe there's some of that. Maybe there's some of, you know, the thought that old men are looking for weakness. And if another woman comes and they're showing weakness, it kind of ruins it for all of us. So yes, exactly. You know, that type of a thing. I don't, I'm not sure, but I think this is it's a good conversation to get going. Can we talk a little bit about your experience kind of in the once you've graduated and now you're kind of working? What challenges, if any, have you faced? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of challenges. I think one thing in the job market, I think there have been times that I have been passed over for jobs to male colleagues. And I don't think it's because of anyone necessarily questioning my ability as a woman, but I think questioning my commitment, you know, fears about, oh, you know, she's young childbearing age. Is she going to get pregnant? And what does that look like for our practice? You know, or will she be willing to work full time or be on call? You know, all these kind of question marks. So I think that's something to be philosophical about, you know, if you're looking to add a woman to your practice, you know, because, you know, we all know by law, you can't take that into account when making a decision, but do people hundred percent, you know, (laughs) 100% you do. It's not easy being a small business owner and having someone take maternity leave. We've all been there, you know, things like that. So that's definitely a challenge. And then trying to plan when you do face those questions yourself personally, how to work that into your life is very difficult. When I was finishing my residency, I knew I had infertility. And so I was doing in vitro fertilization. And I was doing my first round, which was embryo harvest. And I was doing it right at the end of residency and right in between my break of starting the next job. The timing didn't go like I wanted it to, and things were taking longer than they should have. So instead of being able to have the procedure, you know, like early in the week before starting my first day at my job, it got pushed back. The embryos weren't growing the way they should have been on time. And so the day that I would have been doing my embryo transfer would have been the first day. No, oh, jeez. Okay. Have my first job. <laughs> of like, course. I was like, I don't know what to do. You know, I worked so hard. You know, I'm finally like starting my first real job. And what do you do? Do you call your new boss and tell them, "Hey, I'm trying to get pregnant on my first day of work. Is it okay if I don't come in?" You know. And I was devastated because I've been, you know, trying to start my family for a while and it wasn't working. And we decided to kind of put all my embryos in the freezer and wait. But, you know, that was just like baptism by fire, you know. Jeez, yeah, so life. stressful. And so those things are, are challenging to maneuver. And then I um, ended up in the practice and it was kind of a unique situation where the doctor that was in the practice he had to close the practice before I came because of emergency health issues. And so when I came, I opened the practice back up. He was supposed to come back and join me. It's supposed to be like a two and a half men practice. And so he wasn't able to come back because he wasn't able to recover like he expected. And so I kept the practice open and productive and doing great. And then in the meantime, you know, trying to get pregnant and it was very difficult. And I kept having miscarriages and I finally got pregnant and I did a two embryo transfer 
and one of those embryos split. So initially I had triplets. So, you know, now I'm trying to figure out, oh my gosh, how can I work having triplets? How can I even make this work? And, you know, am I going to be on bed rest for my whole, you know, so those are scary thoughts to be having, especially when you're the only doctor in a, you know, 60 mile radius, you know, people are relying on you. I ended up losing one of the babies and I carried my twins successfully to 36 weeks. And so that went fine, but I did have to take off maternity leave and they weren't able to find anyone to cover me like a locums person. So the practice had to close. And so we're very happy about that. And they were urging me to come back at four weeks and I'd had a complicated delivery I almost bled out and my little boy got stuck and they almost tried to break his arm to come out. And he was, you know, having some health problems, you know, preemie twins and just trying to get adjusted and not sleeping and they're not eating like they should, you know, there's so much going on. And so by law, I knew I was allowed to have six weeks off. So it took six weeks. You know, my doctors wanted me to take six weeks. I asserted that, you know, by law, I was allowed to take that. And so I did, and they were upset about it. So when I came back, there was a lot of harassment and kind of bullying that continued as a result of that. And I ended up finding one of the residents in our program who was graduating and brought him on to join the practice. Because again, it's supposed to be a two, two and a half man practice. And so the understanding is that he would be there to work alongside me. And then at the end of April, after he signed and everything was official, they let me know that I was no longer going to be working there. And, you know, pretty much stated that it was because I was a mom. <laughs> they thought since I was a mom, I'd probably just want to be home. And so here I was, you know, the end of April without a job. Just not great timing. Come June, I'd be out of a job. So that was really interesting, you know, going through all of our training. And then I literally filed for unemployment, which I never in a million years would have thought I'd be in the position to do, you know, and I'm in this oversaturated market. My husband's finishing residencies. There's like really no jobs. <laughs> Luckily, I was able to find another job, you know, working a satellite clinic. And that actually worked out really well. But that was super difficult to go through and definitely took some legal action and whatnot. So yeah, that's no fun. <laughs> and, you know, we can talk a little bit about that as well. You know, like things that I've learned from that one is just the process. So if you have been a victim of discrimination in the workplace, you know, it's kind of hard to figure out what to maneuver. Like I have lots of lawyer, family members and friends and everyone's just like, yeah, there's not really anything you can do. Or I don't know. You know, <laughs> Luckily, my dad, he was in, you know, kind of the HR side of things. And he told me to apply to the EEOC. So if you are ever facing something like that, the EEOC is the appropriate place. There's definitely a process for that. So you will file a complaint. If the company has more than 15 employees, then you can file federally. And if it's smaller than that, you can file with the state. So if it qualifies for both, you probably want to do both. And then what they will do is they will launch an investigation and it's all on their own dime. Okay. The government is doing that. You don't have to pay or anything and they will look into it. If they find probable cause that something did happen, then they'll give you a couple of options. One, they can actually go to court for you if they decide to take on your case, or they at that point will give you the opportunity to, you have to get a letter of intent to sue. So you can't actually 
you know, go privately and do your lawsuit until you get to that stage. So I went through all of that. That was a long process. It's not supposed to take as long as it did for me. It was about a year, year and a half process because unfortunately the practice owner ended up passing away during that time. His wife, who was the office manager, was actually kind of the instigator of most of the abuse. And, you know, it was nice of them to give her a little bit of time, but that delayed things. (laughs) After going through multiple steps, you know, they do give you opportunities to mediate. They were not interested in doing that. So we went far enough that the state decided that there was a high chance of probable cause that something did happen and discrimination did occur, which I've been told is kind of unusual. And then at that point, since they, since the practice owner had died, they'd thought about perhaps dropping the case. So at that point, I found some lawyers to take me on to work with that case. And we ended up at some point coming to a resolution, but okay, it's a long process. Jeez. Yeah. Difficult. It's long, stressful, difficult, but probably, you know, important for you to do. It's a warning to male practice owners or female practice owners. Also, you have to be careful about these things. They can't yeah. back to bite you. You know, these are real things and people do all sorts of dumb <laughs> things, say all sorts of dumb discriminatory things, thinking that it's not going to come back to them, but it can. So you need to be careful and protect yourself both as, you know, the employer and the employee. That's a good point. Yeah. Just for our listeners who don't know, because I didn't know at first what that stood for, I just looked it up. EEOC is Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Is that correct? Yes. It's a federal agency. Yes. Okay. So good to know that resources exist and there's a process. And Right. And that's not for just gender discrimination. That's for age discrimination or, you know, any kind of ethnic discrimination, things like that. So good to know. Uh, I'm sure that it was very hard to go through, taught you some difficult lessons, but how unfortunate that it had to come to that. And, you know, and you're dealing with such such a hard time with your babies and trying to get them going and you're feeling pressure about working. It's just like, oh my gosh, I just feel for you. Yeah, thank you. It was a very dark time. One of the best pieces of advice I can give after going through that I was super lucky that my employer, I don't think they were brave enough to talk to me in person about anything. So almost everything they did was in writing. (laughs) So for me, that was really lucky. I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of documentation of egregious things that they had said, you know, so most people aren't hopefully that dumb to be that blatant on paper. (laughs) So, you know, on the employer side, That reminds me, I try to have discussions in person, you know, it reminds me of working with patients, you know, if patients text me, I try to call them back rather than having things, you know, written because anything you say on Facebook, talking to a friend can be called into a record, you know, anything you have on text can be called into record, all those things. So on that side, I try to do things verbally, but I also to protect myself, if there's ever anything that happens at work, that's questionable. I write down exactly what happened in the email and I send it to myself. And that way it's time stamped, stated. I can remember all the details. You know, I can use the quote, direct quotes from what was said, et cetera. And that's, I think, really important for women, especially as we're talking. If anything happens in your residency or in the workplace that just made you kind of have that ick feeling inside, write it down. Because by the time you realize 
this is a pattern and something bad is happening, you may not have that documentation to support your position. So anything that any of those moments I talked about, you know, where you're going, that wasn't that big of a deal. Write it down, send it as an email to yourself, put it in a folder. Hopefully one day you'll delete the folder because you won't need it. But if you don't, if it has become a pattern, you're going to have that precedent set. You're going to have it all documented and that will really come to help you in the future. But again, like I said, most of the time, it's really easy to discount yourself and just say, it's not that big of a deal. You know, even in the lawsuit, I questioned that a lot. These weren't people that I didn't like. You know, these are people that I had mostly positive feelings for and everything they'd done wasn't all bad. You know, (laughs) I didn't really want to do anything to hurt them, but I was trying to advocate for myself and for other women and to take a stand. And, you know, it's easy to question, was this a big deal? Do I even have a case? You know, and it turns out my lawyers are like, oh my gosh, this is one of the most like sealed cases we've ever seen, you know? And yet I still found myself being like, boy, am I just being dramatic, you know? So do things to protect yourself. Yeah. That is so good to hear. And also that kind of internal battle that you're describing of questioning, you know, for listeners who I think, especially if you're in residency, because it's such a high pressure situation. And I even myself, I felt so powerless to say anything when people were, you know, kind of harassing me mentally, emotionally, like you were saying, the toxic abuse that happens. As a resident, you feel like if I say anything, negative about any of my superiors, you know, they could fire me, they could kick me out, you know, and I've worked so hard to get this point. I don't want my hopes and dreams to be smashed because I, you know, had hard feelings about somebody being rude to me. Um, And so I think most of us just suck it up, you know, and try to hang in there. But like, what advice do you have for women in a situation where it's, you know, not so much just being mean at you as a person or whatever, but also as a woman. I think something again, and it's really hard to do. And as I get older, you know, being in my late thirties is really liberating. I'm freeing myself of a lot of that toxic people pleasing that I think women especially are often kind of thrust into is setting a boundary. You know, there are things that were done or said to me in residency. And again, like you're saying, especially like my intern year where I was trying to prove myself and be accepted into the program. It was like, I never wanted to come across like, you know, it's like you get the abuse and you feel like, could I have some more, sir? You know? <laughs> and now I realize, like, I wish I would have just said, this isn't okay. And I think that would have gained me some respect and maybe helped me not continue to face those. Like, for example, when I was an intern, I was talking on the phone to a patient. And in the background, I could hear my chief resident making fun of my voice. He was saying, I have a phone voice. I talk kind of like this on the phone. Like, that's just a natural thing that I do. That's my voice. I'm sorry that my voice is higher than yours. He was making fun of it in the background going, oh, my gosh, if she talked to me like that in that voice, I would shoot myself, you know. And I was really embarrassed. And I felt humiliated and ashamed. But did I say anything? No. And it would have been very easy, like the guys joke with each other, to be like, oh, come on. I don't make fun of you for being short or bald or, you know, like, you know, they weren't willing to dish it out. Of course, they don't take it as welcoming from a woman, I've also learned. But, you know, I wish I would have just said, 
hey, that's not cool. You don't need to make fun of my voice, you know? Or I think not taking it personally too, men are received differently than women. We've been talking about that. There was an example in residency. This patient had a jaw fracture. He was like 19 years old. They didn't have enough room for him on the adult floor. So they had him on the pediatric unit awaiting surgery. And he was in there stomping around, yelling and cussing, causing all sorts of problems. And so I was internally told me, you know, Sheffield, go down there and see what's going on. Just get him up to surgery. We need to get this done. So I go down there and he'd been yelling and cussing this whole time. And I go in there and it's like, you need to stop doing this. You can't talk to these people like this. You know, you're on a pediatric floor, you're disturbing and frightening the children, you know, and he just kept ranting and raving and I shouldn't even be, I should be on adult floor. So I could say, what we, no, that's not the point, <laughs> you know? And he kept calling me nurse. You just come in here, nurse. And you're and I'm like, I'm not your nurse. I'm the doctor. And you can't talk to these people like this. This is not appropriate. You know, he's yelling and cussing at like three different nurses in there. He's yelling and cussing at his grandma on the phone. He's got a fiance. He's yelling and cussing at her. He's yelling and cussing at me. He's yelling and cussing at two different social workers. I'm going out. And I didn't realize at the time he was even like physically, you know, stomping up behind me as I was leaving, like in a threatening manner. And even at some point said that he was going to get a gun or something. I don't know. Super inappropriate things I didn't hear till later. I would have intervened more. You know, I'm an intern, not really sure what to do. I think I need to call security, co green type of thing on this guy. And they're going, No, Sheffield, we just need to get this guy fixed. Go in there, get him to sign the consent form and bring him up to the OR. <laughs> so, again, I'm going in there. You can't talk to me like this. This isn't okay. You can't talk to these people like this, you know. It's just not okay. And it's still going on, still going on. So I finally call my chief. I'm like, I don't know what more I can do. He comes down. He's the most mild-mannered guy you've ever met. He's not a big guy. He's not a loud guy. He's not a threatening person by any means. I remember at one point in residence, he said, I'm so mad right now. You know, that's like his level of emotion and passion, you know. So he goes in. The second he walks in that room, the yelling and screaming stop. You know, he'd been yelling and cussing at like six or seven different women. I'd been in there trying to certainly can't do this. You know, he goes in there, he stops. A few minutes later, he comes out on a wheelchair and my chief rolls him out and he goes up to surgery. And his one stipulation, I not be there in the OR. You know, so then I get that was the patient stipulation that me, the horrible nurse that I am, not be up in the OR to help with the case. And then I get up to the residence room and people heard about it and they're going, Sheffield. How could you let that guy talk to you that way? I didn't let the guy talk to me that way. I told him it wasn't okay. I told him that he couldn't talk like that, you know, but I didn't have any power. In this, you know, he doesn't respect women. He was yelling and cussing at six or seven different women, whether it was his, you know, future spouse's grandma, a nurse, a professional, the doctor. He didn't care, you know, so trying not to. And then I'm feeling bad, like, oh, my gosh, I did something wrong. And another experience having someone calling me with a consult, very rude. They didn't give me any of the patient information. They didn't give me the patient's name. They didn't give me health history. Like, get up here now. And I'm like, who is it? So, you know, this is a consult. I need some information. Like, just get up here. You're yelling at me. And so I complained to my chief, you know, that was rude, you know, and you'd hope your chief would support you a little bit. Well, Aaron, people of character like me don't let other people talk to them that way.
and I was embarrassed and I was ashamed. And then as I thought about it, I, you know, luckily was able to realize, okay, it's not a reflection of my character, how other people choose to treat me. It's a reflection of my character, how I choose others. So just because you're used to demanding, you know, you get on the phone and suddenly your man voice, everyone's like, yes, sir. Oh, of course, sir. You know, just because you demand a little bit more respect because you talk like this and I talk like this. That's not a character flaw on me, you know, and I wish that I'd had the maturity at the time to recognize that and to let it roll more off my back. But you have to just find that confidence in yourself. And the thing that I've come to realize now, the best thing I have to offer my patients is my true self. That's my high voice. That's me being emotional. That's me, all parts of me. Okay. I'm not saying I'm perfect or that makes me the best. All parts of me make me the best surgeon, but being my true authentic self is really what is the best. And I spent so much of my time in residency modeling behavior that I thought was what a surgeon was supposed to be. And I realized later that wasn't how a surgeon had to act. That was just how the people around me tended to act. They tend to be men (laughs) and they tend to act more a certain way, you know, more reserved, more stoic, you know, less emotional, less attached to patients and things like that. And when I was able to finally just be myself, I joke around with patients. I'm kind of chatty, all those things. When I go to the OR, I chat and I make jokes and maybe we're a little less reverent than we were in the OR, you know, in residency. I honestly, for the first like four and a half years of residency, thought that the OR was this like sacred place where you go and you don't talk and, you know, it's like a whisper and then I went to the OR with a female surgeon on another team and she was like, hey, Julie, hey, you know, how'd you keep, you know, she was friendly and she was bubbly and she was fun. And the feeling of the OR was just so different. She was much more matching my personality that I've been suppressing all along because I thought that's what you did. I thought that's what surgeons do. And that's just because, you know, and then I realized, oh, well, I just haven't had anyone to show me a different way the surgeon can be, you know, so being who you really are, not trying to fit into that mold, not trying to be a man or like a man, just be yourself. That's the best thing you can offer. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing these stories. And I mean, it's hard to hear as a man because it's like kind of depressing to me that we act this way as men and that, you know, I doubt the chief or whoever it was, you know, the male person talking to you recognized that you were being treated this way because you're a woman and then just decided not to mention that and said, you know, why don't you can't let people talk to you like that and just give you a hard time. I mean, they probably honestly thought, what's wrong with you? You know, like, just be like me. You just walk in there and say this and this is what happens. But it's like as sometimes as men, we just miss the whole thing. It goes over our head. And it's really good to hear this because uh, you're totally right. It's not, it shouldn't be turned back on you and say, oh, why? this is your fault. Why do you let people talk to you like that? It's just it's so inappropriate to do that and, and hurtful. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. That's really reassuring to hear the empathy. <laughs> and hopefully this helps some of our listeners kind of be more aware and conscious of, you know, the extra difficulties culturally that women face being in that position. So I don't think the majority of our male colleagues are meaning to treat us in a way that's different or less than or unsupportive. But I think some of us culturally not understanding or being aware 
You know, like I think a lot of people, when you call me sweetie, you think you're being sweet, (laughs) but a little condescending perhaps, you know, one thing that I try really hard and it's hard even for me, I try really hard not to call my staff the girls, right? We all do it. I do it. It's so common, but are they girls or are they women who are professionals and who are you know, doing hard jobs and doing hard things. Are we infantilizing them and taking away their clout by calling them the girls? Or can we call them their names or, you know, my staff or, you know, let's give them the clout they deserve. But these are just cultural things that we do without thinking. And sometimes I do it. Sometimes I do it too, for sure. Yeah, that's so good to hear. Stuff we need to be aware of and more kind of, I don't know if they're sensitive, but just careful of, you know, here's, the wording that we use culturally, this is kind of what can happen and the feelings that it can create. And let's all do a better job to respect each other. It starts by getting everyone's point of view, you know, and at least being informed of how people are feeling. So I think this is a good first step. You know, I mean, as far as, you know, changes that, that I think we can make as men, I think like we're talking about one is just talking about this, getting you know, more information on how everyone's feeling in these situations. But I was reading some articles before this on things that have gone into trying to help women in surgery and equality. Certainly, as employers, if we are the employer to create a work situation where there is more flexibility on hours and more maybe time, like you're saying, for pregnancy to prepare for that because I would guess that most women who become surgeons, you know, probably, I don't know if most want to be a parent, but probably most who do become parents still want to do surgery, you know, and I doubt, and probably that's a misconception we have as men as well, they're going to get pregnant, then they'll just go home and never come back to work. But, you know, understanding that most do and they work so hard to get to that point, of course, they want to come back. So why don't we have internal systems to allow them to also be a mother? You know, it just seems like something that should be there. I love that. Well, and I think, too, not being afraid of letting your employees do things in a more creative way. You know, like these are our hours and these are what we work, you know, well, I work three hours. I Not three hours. That'd be nice. I work three days a week. In my practice, that sounds like not a lot, but most people I know and especially work four days a week. So, you know, is it really that much different? The other thing is that I think I see a similar number of patients in my three days that my partner does in four, you know, so sometimes not being as rigid in our expectations and then understanding that, you know, some of that's going to change with time as my children get older and in school, I may pick up more hours or, you know, (laughs) choose to work longer, you know, maybe I work three 10 hour days, you know, there's things that we can do without just being so stuck in our mindset of how things are supposed to be. I think another thing that's kind of become my soapbox lately, too, is just being willing to expand our narrative on what professionalism is. I think a lot of our ideas about professionalism are kind of made up by old white dudes, (laughs) to say it very colloquially. You know, and I think that that's harmful for everyone in a way. Because, you know, things are changing and our world is different. Medicine and healthcare is different. And a lot of our priorities, you know, most of us aren't willing to 
be that doctor that, you know, our whole life is being a surgeon and we live in the OR and we never see our kids or, you know, like a lot of us do have some lifestyle. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. People look down on that when that was their life's work, you know, and I gave up my family. Why shouldn't you? But I think there are just things like, you know, who decided that what hairstyles are appropriate, you know, the ethnic hairstyles are not okay. You know, the hair that your head grows naturally isn't professional. That's ridiculous. You know, like, no, and, you know, you should be stoic and, you, you know, you shouldn't be so emotional. Well, I'm an emotional person. I'm a very emotional person. Sometimes I cry with my patients. And sometimes I give my patients a hug. Like, I do that. And some people would look at me and say, that's unprofessional. Well, that's who I am. And if I'm able to build a bond with my patients by doing that, then that's professionalism to me. You know, sometimes, again, being the mom, my husband and I are both surgeons, by the way, but most of childcare coordinating relies on me. And so, you know, my daughter got hand, foot, mouth yesterday and got sent home from school. Well, I didn't have a babysitter aligned for those times when she wasn't in school. And so what do you do? Bring her to my office. A lot of people look at that and say, oh, my gosh, that's so unprofessional. That you'd have your kids at your office. Well, to me, it's professional that I'm able to continue to see my patients without disrupting them, without them knowing that my very well-behaved child is in my office, not bothering anyone, you know. Um, but there are things that I feel like, you know, look down upon. I'm on TikTok. I make TikTok videos educational purposes and hopefully to be kind of funny or entertaining at times. I don't know how good I do at that, but I try, you know, and I've had people tell me, oh my gosh, that's so unprofessional. You really should not be on social media, you know, like there's just some people. And then, you know, like my marketing told me to be on social media. Like they said, that was the best thing I should be doing right now. So do I follow them and their advice or do I follow you who says this is a horrible idea and a liability and going to get you in trouble and it's stupid and it makes you look dumb and your patients aren't going to, you know, like there's different opinions and to just be so rigid on what's professional or not based on what a bunch of old white dudes said. I don't accept that anymore. Yep. I totally agree. Hey, I've brought my kids to work and my kids are not well-behaved kids. They like run through the hall screaming. And I'm just like, yeah, that was my kid running by there. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, and I think patients, you know, they like seeing that you have kids, that your kids are crazy like theirs. I don't know. Those vulnerabilities, this idea that like the doctor is God. I think that's old fashioned, you know, knowing the vulnerability and understanding that we are people and we have our own challenges and we're not perfect and we don't always know the answer. I think that that's much more humanitarian way to act in our practice. I'm especially sensitive to the issues of having a family and kids and that mentality of, you know, you work X amount of hours and you dedicate your life to surgery is just something that has always bothered me. We could do a whole other podcast on men and pregnancy and that's inappropriate as well. Like I felt like I was pressured in residency to come back the day after my wife had a baby, you know, and it's like, well, what's the problem? You, know, you didn't have the baby. Like, you need to be here tomorrow. You're on trauma call. And I'm just like, dude, this is just brutal. Yeah, 100%. Our intern, his wife had a baby in our same hospital. 
And like, as soon as she was done having the baby, he was there to be like, look how committed I am. You know, here I am. It was like, you know, like that same afternoon. And I was so glad, you know, they're like, get out of here. And he's like, no, I'm okay. And they're like, your wife will never forgive you. You get out of here, you know? But yeah, that's the toxicity that you think that that's like, look how awesome I am. I'm here. I'm back. Or, you know. There's a lot of conversation I think that needs to happen there to improve some of the professional type, quote unquote, things that have been set up. So yeah, definitely. Those are great examples. Any other things you want to discuss in that realm of professionalism? No, I think we covered that pretty good. I mean, I think talking about it, talking to patients, like you're saying, I've found that being more vulnerable with patients only helps me and them. Like our relationship is so much better if I can sit there and sometimes cry with them. And like you're saying, give them a hug and just, it's only good stuff. And naturally, if you're like that, I don't think you need to, you know, suppress that because of a feeling, you know, that you thought that, or the cultural thing that says you shouldn't do that. I was reading several things about equal pay in the job setting, and that's the whole other topic. But there's so much research showing that women surgeon, you know, on average, I think it's roughly earned like 20, 23, 24% less than men, which is just so unfortunate. I'm not sure how to correct that, uh, you know, unless you're the owner of the practice and things like that. But I mean, is that stuff you've encountered or not really? When I was in residency, you know, we got paid by PGY year. Didn't matter like what your position was. And so I said, I did an intern year. And so I did match into the program the next year, the same program. And so even though I was going to be an intern again, I was technically a PGY2. And originally I signed a contract for a PGY2. And then I was told that my program director specifically asked that I be demoted to PGY1. And again, it may not have been my gender. It was, I think that they were wanting it to just seem fair with the other real first years, you know, <laughs> that would get paid the same, but that they would go out of their way to go and ask for that and to go against like the whole hospital standard. And so when I went and asked them about it, you know, to change it, they asked them to fix that, you know, but I had to quote that there was a male in our program who was in the same situation, I'd done an intern year and he hadn't been demoted in his pay. So, you know, it's like, well, he's getting paid, even though he's technically a fourth year, he's getting paid as a fifth year. And here I'm a woman, not, you know, just this kind of a weird precedent. So, you know, those things happen. Whether I get paid less than male colleagues, sometimes it's hard to know, you know, you don't, I mean, if I knew, you'd probably go in and fired up and, you know, you can't, you know, <laughs> You can't let me get paid for less for doing the same thing, but you know, salaries are not always, you know, published or public knowledge. You worry about that and you wonder about that when you're signing contracts, especially. You mentioned just briefly, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, kind of maybe subconscious discrimination that goes into women not being as strong as men and not being able to do the job. It's probably not maybe as big of a deal or concept in oral surgery. But still, I think that does exist. And it's probably more an orthopedic surgery. I, that's what at least the articles I was reading. But I think that's unfortunate, too, that we patients, you know, other surgeons think, oh, she can't do a good enough job 
as you know him because he's not as big and strong. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's definitely a perception with patience, one hundred percent. I hear that all the time from patients. Like occasionally I've been a little surprised to hear similar things from dentists. Like, oh, I don't know if she'll be able to do that, you know. <laughs> but it's definitely a patient thing. Usually I just kind of laugh it off or I show on my muscles or it's helpful when I step. Oh, she's a lot stronger than she looks, you know. But I think in some ways it makes me a better surgeon. In a lot of ways, I there are teeth that definitely we could manhandle out of there, you know. <laughs> we all do it every you know. I can't do that. Like, you know, I feel like most of the guys I know were old surgeons, like big ex football player dudes, you know, and I can't do that stuff, but you know, I'm definitely good with the handpiece. <laughs> so, yeah, same here. <laughs> but it's super satisfying. I've had so many patients that are a little iffy and not sure and wonder if they should go, go see my male colleague. And I love doing that because almost always they are like, Oh my gosh. Wow. Oh my gosh, you did that. Wow. How so fast? How did you do it? You know? So I feel like it's an opportunity to win them back over. So I try instead of to be offended, just to use it as an opportunity to kind of show my skills and, but you know, it definitely happens and it's interesting, you know, but you know, we all hear about the patients that tell us about how the dentist got on their chest and just kind of joke about that too like well i might have to get on top of you about lisa yes our program director was always having to tell us the quote we take teeth out with lidocaine not brudocaine so <laughs> quit, quit uh, manhandling the patient that's how you break off the alveolus right there just <laughs> but yeah i think having more finesse and honing your craft and being more careful all that can only be helpful so just something to bring up is something we should be aware of and not perpetuate any other things that we can talk about as far as women in surgery. I think one thing that's helpful for women who are considering going into surgery or who are on residency is to find a mentor like you. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean to find a woman mentor. It would be great if you could, um, but you may not know any women to be your mentor, or maybe the women you know are not, you know, the best mentor for you. Although I think there are a lot of us like online, we have a Facebook group, a private Facebook group that none of you men are allowed to be in. That's a women in oral surgery Facebook group, which was really nice and helpful. You know, I think there are people who are willing to be helpful and reach out in those ways. But I think finding a mentor who's like you, just in your priorities, um, you know, find someone that resonates with you on how they treat patients or what their practice philosophy is, things like that, and model your behavior off of them rather than just what you see around you in residency. You know, (laughs) I wish I would have known again, like I said before, that some of these things I were trying to model wasn't like what surgeons had to be. It was just happened to be the people I was around, if that makes sense. We talked about protecting yourself with documentation, being yourself, changing the narrative around professionalism, find a mentor. Oh, another really big one. I think it's really easy to develop kind of residency Stockholm syndrome, right? Where you start enmeshing with your captors. And I'm not saying I'm not saying you're captive to your residency callings and things like that in a way, but I think most women who go into oral surgery, we know it's a good old boys club and we're not super afraid of that. You know, I always got along well with guys. I always had male friends. I always got along well with them. I felt comfortable in that situation. So that was not like an intimidating thought or idea to me. 
you know, and then you hear things, you know, locker room talk and blah, blah, blah. And maybe you start participating in that or, you know, you don't let it bother you. And I remember even in residency, one of the guys was like, oh, Sheffield, she's just like one of the guys, you know, and that's like a moment of pride. Like, yeah, I'm like one of the guys. Isn't this so awesome? But I've realized as I've gone farther along, it's great to be accepted. It's great to have that camaraderie. That's super important. You want to be a team player. You want to be likable. You want to get along. You want to, you know, be friends. That's all wonderful. You know, I have some really good friends from residency. They're all guys and I love them, you know, but you're also giving up part of who you are and yourself to be one of the good old boys. I think it's a protective mechanism. And I think we've all been there. I bet every single one of us has prided ourselves on being one of the guys. And I've had this conversation with women before too, you know, like, Oh, don't, you know, don't let yourself just become so much of one of the guys that you can like, Oh, it's no, it's fine. I get along so well. I am just like one of the guys, you know, like you don't even understand that maybe that's not the best thing. So again, I'm not trying to say don't be a colleague. Don't be a friend. Don't be part of the program. Don't be part of the group. I'm not saying that, but don't be that so much that you are losing who you are as a person and as an individual who has wonderful things to offer. I love that. That's so great to hear. I have three daughters myself, and I would be overjoyed if one or all of them became a surgeon. There's no pressure there. They don't have to. If they become, <laughs> an, if they become an anesthesiologist, that's okay. I'm not going to look down on them. <laughs> but, but I hope uh, you know when they get older and they're thinking about it, they listen to this episode because there's been so many great things that I think can be helpful for a woman going to surgery and hopefully by the time they're there it's half and half and it's more equaled out and a lot of these cultural things are kind of gone and there's less pressure but you know we, we just don't know so i appreciate all that you've been saying of course of course thank you very very helpful well good i think that is a good start on this conversation if there are any listeners who kind of have further questions or maybe want to have some mentoring from you? Are you okay if they reach out to you? I would love that. This again is my passion. I'm always trying to recruit people into our field. That's why I'm on TikTok, things like that. So please feel free to contact me. I can put your email in the show notes if that's okay. That'd be great. Excellent. Well, good. Thank you for your time. And hopefully we can reconnect and do some more. Great. I'd love to. Okay, sounds good. Have a good day. You too. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or you know learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you. Mm-hmm.